If you would open your Bible to the book of Acts, as we continue our study through that book, we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 16, because we left off in chapter 16. We're going to examine this morning uh, verses 19 through 40. Um, As we examine uh, Acts chapter 16, and you have your Bible open there, uh, maybe put a, a placeholder or your worship folder in uh, Romans chapter 8 as well. So we'll make some uh, application from uh, that uh, text as well. We're going to begin with prayer this morning as we do. We'll follow this by reading aloud the text that we are considering, and then we will examine the passage for uh, application as we go. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come asking for grace in the Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage to us that we might understand it, that we might be stirred in the soul and moved to action. May the gospel have your desired effect this morning. We ask for those with hard-hearted animus toward the gospel that they would be softened by your grace. We ask that you fill our hearts with joy in our salvation amid the trials of our daily lives, Lord. We ask that by your spirit, our lives would match our confession, our confession that Jesus is our Lord. Give us assurance, Lord, that we have peace with you because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As you are uh, able, would you please stand for the reading of the infallible, inherent inerrant, inspired word of God from Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. But when her owner saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, magistrates sent the police saying, 
Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is God's word. You may be seated. So I want to begin this morning by declaring this truth to you, that the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit is a command of God to repent and believe. It's more than a good idea in the marketplace of many other ideas. It's not a suggestion, but a command. It is a call from God to repent and believe. The command of God in the gospel is not met often with ambivalence or neutrality. The gospel, the command of the gospel has an effect upon the hearer. Ambivalence or neutrality is really a no. If we say later, it's no. If I say, when I get my house in order, that answer to the call, the outward call of God in the gospel is no. No is no. And yes is yes. The effect of the gospel is dependent upon the sovereign will of God alone. It's what I want us to see. That, that the gospel has its effect. And if it has its saving effect, it is in the sovereign will of God alone. John 3.8 tells us this, that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The effect of the gospel differs between those who have been called internally and those who are merely hearers of an external proclamation. Those who are without an internal transformation of the Spirit of God according to the sovereign grace of God are those who hear the word of God and they respond, no. They've been called externally, but it's apparent that in their rejection they have not been called internally. Many Christians fail to distinguish between the external call of the gospel and the internal call of the Holy Spirit. It is true that God calls all men externally. And some might say that God calls all men externally, and then when some repent and believe, God gives them new life. It's true that God calls all men, but it's not true that God gives them new life based on their repentance and faith. I want you to hear me clearly on this. Okay? It sounds as though I'm contradicting something, but I want you to hear clearly what I mean. God calls all men externally. He only calls his own internally. Those he calls internally will respond in repentance and faith. See, it is God who calls. It is God who changes. Those who truly respond to the external call are those who have been called internally and been changed and given new birth. Then they respond in faith to the external call. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I want to look, uh, I'm setting this up a bit by looking at Romans 8. 
I want to look at verses 28 through 30 with you. And we know that God calls all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. So as we think about this internal call, we know this, that God works all things together for good for those who are not just given an external call. If you, if we take this to its logical conclusion, we say that God calls all men externally and then they do some other work to, to supply God with a saving faith by repentance and faith in their own strength they do this right if if we say this that that god then works all things together for good for anyone who heard the gospel for all who heard the external call god works everything together for good do you find that true it's true that god works all things together for good for those who were not merely given just an external call but those who had been called internally by the Spirit, He works all things together for their good, according to His saving purposes. We know that God has conformed those who have been called internally into the image of His Son. If, if it's merely just an external call, then all are saved, right? All are transformed. No, those who are called according to His purpose are called internally by the Spirit, and they are transformed. They are changed into the image of His Son. Those who have merely heard the outward call have not been transformed. We know that God does not just any, justify anyone based on the fact that someone called them externally. But those who God has called internally are justified and will one day be glorified. If it's merely a proclamation of the gospel to, that justifies the hearer of the word, then all are saved. Not all are saved. Those whom God has called internally will respond to the external call. I want us to get this clear. At this point in our time, you might be asking, Pastor, what does this have to do with the text that we're looking at in Acts chapter 16? You might be thinking that. Well, in our text, we're going to see the uh, gospel effect on those who have been called of God and what, and what res their, their response the response of those who have been called internally is that they find joy amid suffering. The gospel effect to the internally called is to bring a person to a credible profession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. The internal call of God and the Holy Spirit causes the hearer of the gospel to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that lordship of Jesus Christ becomes their confession. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I am no longer Lord. That's, that's the idea I want you to get. That, that, that confession can only come from an internal call, from a call of God, from a transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. The hearer of the external call who has been called internally is comforted with the peace of God in all 
kinds of circumstances. Further, we'll note that those who are called externally without the inward call receive the gospel with animus toward the message and toward the messenger. They hear the call of the gospel and it enrages them against the gospel and against the one who brought the message because they have not been called yet internally. I say yet because keep proclaiming it because we don't know the Spirit's timing, right? We don't know when the Spirit might call them inwardly. But we have a responsibility as disciple makers of Jesus Christ, right? To make the call everywhere we go to everyone. There are certain things that are within your lane and things that are within God's lane. And God knows those whom he is going to call internally. We don't. He gives us a command to to call everyone to repentance, to call everyone to faith. That's our lane. We stay in that lane with what we know. We know that God has called us to proclaim the gospel to everyone, everywhere, in every place, in every type of circumstance. And then we trust God to have called them internally to transform people, to change them, that they might receive the gospel of grace. We'll note that in the presence of the Spirit, the unconverted are struck with terror. Do you and I know who can be internally called? Well, the short answer is, of course, no. The great commission saint, you and I were obligated to proclaim the whosoever gospel, to give the external call, calling all people to repentance and faith. And then we entrust the internal call to the one who causes the gospel to have his divine predetermined effect. So let us dive in to this passage, looking at verses uh, 19 through 24 first. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So to give us a little background, to get us caught up in the context of where we left off, the owners of this slave girl, they meet uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in delivering this girl from, from the oppression of demonic forces. And when they meet this, when they, when they see what it is that the Spirit is doing through the work of Paul and Silas for this girl, freeing her from, from, from this demonic oppression, they respond to the gospel with animus anger with this idea that the gospel is going to is stealing something from me that the spirit is taking something away from us when we look back at Acts 16 16 through 8 the gospel interferes with their ability to take advantage of this girl it's really what they're they're upset about they want to take advantage of this girl their ability to take advantage of her oppression for their own financial gain. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying her out, These men are servants of the Most High God 
who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. See, the effect of the gospel in the minds of the slave owners was, it's ruining my business. This is going to ruin my business. And, it, and the effect of the gospel we see in other places ruined the business of those who traded on or who made use of human superstitions and human vice. So when the gospel came and it, it, it encroached upon their lifestyle, their response to the gospel was animus. To the outward call was animosity, fear, anger, all of those things. Another case that happens in the book of Acts, um, it occurs in Ephesus in chapter 19. I'm just going to read 23 through uh, 27 for you. Uh, About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. (coughs) These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people saying that the gods made with our hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours would come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. See, when the gospel comes and it threatens your livelihood and it threatens your worship, it, th- it threatens the things that you hold dear, that you lift up before God. If you have not been internally called, the gospel effect is, is that it affects you in animus and animosity and fear that, that something is being robbed from you. And the effect of the gospel call, absent of the internal call of God and the Holy Spirit upon those who treasure worldly gain is to see the gospel and its messengers as a threat. A threat to our livelihood. A threat to our way of life. Think about times that you guys have probably proclaimed the gospel to someone who's steeped in deep sin and you might not even be talking about their sin, but you're just telling them that they want, they need to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And usually the animosity is, no, that'll mean I have to give up X, Y, Z. And in the moment, you know, you want to say things like, well, is X, Y, Z your God? Is that the thing that you worship? Is that the thing that you that you treasure most? God is offering you salvation in Jesus Christ. And you're saying, no, that's a threat to all that I hold dear. I know many times that people have said, why would I want that when I have all of this? It can be finances. It can be a position. It can be even a person's education. I have all this education. I have all of this this job. I have this family. Why would I want Jesus? Isn't that a threat to all that I hold dear? I don't want to let go of that. And unless one is internally called, often those who have much, who have much of this world, who who embrace much of what the world has to offer, they they in turn become some of the gospel's most ardent opponents. Think about the most ardent opponents to the gospel. 
the highly educated, right? Because education is their God. It is the thing that they hold dear. I'm an educated person. I can do this myself. I'm a wealthy person. I have all that I need. I have no need of this Jesus. Because you're telling me this, and then my relationship with my things will change. My relationship with who I think I am will change. I don't want that. When we look at verse 21 here, notice the accusations that the magistrates, uh, that are is told by the slave owners to the magistrates here in verse 21. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. See, notice, we already heard their heart is because of financial gain, right? But they don't, that's not the accusation. The accusation to the magistrates is not, oh, we're going to lose everything because of what these men have done. No, that's not the accusation. They say nothing about their economic loss, but they appeal to the common Roman sentiment. They appeal, these people are Jews. In verse 20. So there's local animus already towards Jewish men and women, towards the Jewish faith, towards the God of the Jewish faith. There's already some local animus. So they appeal first to these men are Jews and they advocate things that are, that are opposed to our common Roman practice and they're causing a disturbance in the city. And secondly, the accusation is appeal that they were not conducting themselves as a, as a good Roman citizen would. See, it was forbidden to practice religious cult that was not in keeping with their Roman principles. And one of them at that time that was kind of forbidden was exorcism. It could be considered uh, foreign because it, it goes against these loosely defined Roman principles. See, so the, the Romans only applied the principles when they wanted to. It wasn't like they had these principles that they applied all the time. And especially here at Philippi, because they were far away from the overseers, from those who would notice their behavior, notice the things that they were doing, and notice their practices. They were far away from them. So they could let a lot of things go that they wouldn't let go, say, in Rome. They could let a lot of things just slide by, but they would pick and choose that which was best for them. I'll apply the law here. I'll apply the rule there. But I won't because I get gain from these things, right? So it's very loose as, as they apply this. But this is the accusation. They're doing things that are, that are against a Roman policy, uh, things that are unlawful for us as Romans to accept or, or, to, or to practice. And primarily, the idea here is circumcision. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw him into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the magistrates of the police, they had freedom to exact punishment on foreigners for violating Roman principles. So they can, they can punish them without trial, you see. Notice that the punishment comes first. 
There's no trial. They're not in prison yet. They haven't been put into jail yet. But let's beat them with rods, and we'll get the whole crowd to do so too. So the crowd helps in beating them. These police carried these rods with them uh, just for such occasions, right, that might come up. But they exact this punishment on these foreigners for violating Roman principles without a trial. Paul refers to this beating in 2 Corinthians 11.25 as one of three beatings he received for the cause of the gospel. It was apparent to the magistrates that these missionaries carried with them some sort of power. And they see fit to put them in the inner prison. These guys are such a threat that we want to put them in the innermost prison. On a historical level, the magistrates may possibly have feared that such prisoners who had supernatural powers needed to be guarded especially carefully. The jailer therefore placed them in the inmost part, the securest part of the prison. Further, he fastens their legs securely with wooden stocks. The effect of the spirit-empowered gospel on the slave owners was to be moved in animus and suspicion against its proclaimers. These owners could not respond to the outward call of the gospel because they had not been inwardly called by the spirit. Instead of responding in indifference, the slave owners and the magistrates respond in animus and suspicion. Think that's often true about how the media plays out our faith? That we are seen with suspicion. Suspect. And then the animus is that we are all feeble-minded people who have to lean upon some crutch, right? We're weak. We're not with the program. Christians, you just got to get with the program. Think about how many churches today are getting with the program. Think about the churches that are all getting with the program. You can drive just down to Forest Grove and see a church that's totally with the program. They got the rainbow flag in the yard. They've got the signs Black Lives Matter everywhere. They got with the program, right? The world sees us and says, you guys are crazy. You guys need to get with the program. See, if we got with the program, right? If we got with the program of the world, we could probably fill this place up twice over if we got with the program. We got to get with the program, right? This is what the world is clamoring, clamoring for. But instead, they say they they treat us with animus, with hatred, with um, disparaging remarks and marginalization because we're not getting with the program. And there's something suspicious about us. We must all be bigots, right? That's the suspicion as they're all bigoted haters. That's a suspicion. Well, let's, here we are. The, 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 the guys are in the inner stocks. They're in the inner prison. They are secure as secure can be, right? They're locked away. There's no way they're getting out. They're in the innermost prison. They're, they're in the stocks. They're, 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 they're fastened. They're, they're not getting out. Now, it could lead these missionaries to despair. But no, these missionaries, having been given joy and peace and hope in the Holy Spirit, having actually been internally called by God, look at what they do in the midst of this trouble. 
About midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. In the midst of this trouble and suffering, we see a contrast to those who have been called inwardly and those who have yet to be called. The effect of the inward transformation of the Holy Spirit on Paul and Silas was that amid beatings and imprisonment, the Spirit within them remained joyful. The first response to trouble we see here in verse 25 is prayer. Sometimes you can tell a person who merely confesses the Lord but doesn't really believe Him as Lord, don't, doesn't trust Him as Lord, you can sometimes tell that that confession might not be as genuine as you think. Because when trouble comes, it's why God? Why me? Why am I suffering? But look at here, Paul and Silas, their first response is to pray to the God who loves them and saved them. They've entrusted themselves to him in all circumstances, in the midst of this trial and trouble, then by the Spirit, they entrust the one who saves him. They entrust themselves to the sovereign will of God, knowing that it is perfect for them. They pray to the one with that they know has the power to deliver them. And he, they pray to them, to him confidently that if it is his will, they will release him. If it is not, it is still the perfect will of God, and they entrust him. And the second way we see Paul and Silas respond in suffering is to sing songs of praise to God. See, when we're in trouble, we can always sing praise praise to God, even in the worst conditions that we're in, because guess what? If you have saving faith, you have everything you need. We understand that in trial, when trial comes to us as Christians, these things, in the grand scheme of things, matter not. Because God loves me and is saving me completely. That the God who transformed my heart is going to transform my life and he's going to bring me through this trial and suffering. I may even be brought to death, but in death I receive him. What do I have to lose? I have nothing, nothing to lose. I have gained everything. In Christ I have gained everything. Do we get that, brothers and sisters, that in Christ you have gained everything? Everything. And this world will offer you nothing that's, that can compare to the joy that you are one day going to receive in Christ Jesus. That you have been saved. That the wrath of God against you has been accounted to His Son. I wake up every single day thanking God for that. Because when I evaluate the wretchedness that is within my own heart, I know what I deserve. I deserve the wrath of God for my thoughts, for my heart, for the way in which I submit to my own flesh. I understand it quite clearly. And in the next moment, the Spirit gives me assurance that Christ suffered and died for that. 
He took the guilt and shame upon himself that you might be free. In Christ, you see, I have everything. The world cannot offer me that. No one can offer me that peace, that joy, that confidence. The world cannot offer me that. We see Paul and Silas respond to suffering in prayer, in singing songs of praise to God for the salvation that they've already received in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the Corinthian church concerning the effect of the gospel upon those who are called and those who suffer. He writes in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians the effect of the gospel in transforming the believer's life. What he does is give them a different perspective during suffering. See, Paul and Silas have a different perspective. They're the same perspective that he writes to the Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. See, the effect of the gospel on the person called by the Spirit in trials, beatings, and persecutions is to give us an eternal perspective. We're not crushed. We will not be crushed. 